You're listening to Watershed. I'm Anna Hamilton. Welcome to episode number four of Watershed, a podcast exploring the intersecting cultures and environments of Florida. If this is your first time hearing us, you might want to head back to our website, watershedradio.com, to hear our first three stories. I'm going to level with you for a moment here. When we first started Watershed, we had a hard time grappling with how to define ourselves. We're a podcast about the environment, the science of ecosystems, our cultural attachments to the environment, the perceptions and interpretations of this space around us. But an environmental label limits us and has become fused with strong connotations that can alienate many listeners we actually want to reach. So how do you tell stories that you believe are compelling and important whilst battling a stigma? The tension of trying to do good work but facing negative assumptions leads us to this man, a man who began his diving career in his family's bathtub. I was uh, about 13 years old. And I spent hours just staring at the stopper in the bathtub with my tank out of the water. And my mom would come in and say, you know, you're going to shrivel up like a prune if you don't get out. This is Billy Causey, the Southeast Regional Director for NOAA's National Marine Sanctuary Program. Causey says that there was no scuba certification when he was little, so he taught himself. He devoured every book he could get his hands on and practiced every chance he got. And then my first open water dive, which was my third dive, was in about six feet of water in the murky waters of Lake Pontchartrain. And my whole family lined up on the seawall. It was like a gallery, and they all watched me, and here was Billy Don marching out with his scuba equipment to dive in Lake Pontchartrain. It was a big family event. I got out about six feet, I got to the bottom, and I could barely see my hand in front of my face. But the thing that was the most exciting is that I had a mullet swim right in front of my mask. Just a plain old striped mullet. And that was the, the moment that I realized I was going to make my living in the water. And I was going to be a marine biologist. And then I was going to do all I could to get to that point. Fast forward to the 1970s. Kazi is living in the Florida Keys, an archipelago of islands that begin just off of Miami and stretch about 220 miles to the Dry Tortugas. On a map, the Keys form the southern tip of Florida, which sort of tapers off into the sea. By now, Kazi has fallen in love with coral reefs. And I never will forget the first time I got into the water and I saw my first coral reef. Its color, its movement, its spectacular fish, fish that you've never seen before, whether they're damsels or angelfish or or silver jacks or or various kinds of uh, parrotfish, And it's really like a symphony at times to be out there and see the fish moving and to see the the sparkling blue water and to have a big silver side tarpon swim by you or to have a big goliath grouper swim up and get right in your face. It's phenomenal. In the Keys, Kazi's life revolved around coral reefs. He and his wife were making their way as marine life distributors. They'd collect marine specimens, which they'd ship to public aquaria, scientists, and retail stores. So early on, I felt that the, the, the reef had given us so much over the years. And my wife felt the same way. And uh, we continued in, in the 70s to make a living collecting and shipping marine life. And... Um, in doing so, we realized that 
there were problems. We were starting to witness problems when, when the introduction of wire fish traps came in and a lot of the adult broodstock of angelfish were being taken out. Uh, we saw that happening. We started seeing, in the latter 70s, we started seeing the impacts of climate change. I will never, ever forget uh, six weeks of slick, calm, doldrum weather in the Florida Keys in June of 1980, starting in June, went into July, and tens of thousands of fish started bellying up and dying, and fish were developing diseases on the bottom. And my wife and I were just amazed that this could happen in such a large body of water. And, and we had to really stop doing our collecting because you couldn't collect a healthy fish and ship it. It became impossible to justify it after we saw the declines taking place. And we could no longer uh, do what we were doing and do it with good conscience. Partly in response to these pressures, the government considered 13 sites in the Florida Keys for designation as National Marine Sanctuaries. Now, a National Marine Sanctuary is a federally protected marine environment that's subject to certain regulations, protective measures, and limitations. This made fishermen and community members like Causey pretty wary. And we, like so many people in the Florida Keys, didn't know what this meant all of a sudden for 13 National Marine Sanctuaries to be designated. I, along with so many other people, were concerned. And I was concerned about Lou Key, which was one of my very favorite places in my backyard, being designated a National Marine Sanctuary. My main concern at the time was what I would not be able to do there, but I was concerned that it was going to be made a green spot on a map and no one left to protect it. In other words, it would draw people, it would draw attention like national parks or like refuges, but no one would be there to take care of it. So like any prepared opponent, Causey started reading the National Marine Sanctuary Act to find out exactly what would happen. But in doing so, rather than sharpening his sword for battle, Causey had a change of heart. I realized that there was not a better piece of federal legislation that could get the job done to manage areas than the National Marine Sanctuary Act. And the National Marine Sanctuary Act and all of our sanctuaries manage for continued, compatible, multiple uses, both recreational and commercial. And so in studying the act and in studying what we needed to do to protect Luke Key Reef and other areas, I realized I wanted to get engaged and be a part of it. And I had the academic training and I had the experience, so I qualified and I was the the second manager, the first one only lasted six months, but I started managing Lou Key National Marine Sanctuary in May of 83, and I managed it until um, November of 1990 when the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary was designated by an act of Congress. I told you that this is a story about handling opposition and pushing against stigmas, and we're getting to that part now. What I need to stress about Causey is that, yes, he loved the magic of coral reefs. But pre-sanctuary designation, his had been an extractive relationship. He removed marine life from natural habitat and sold specimens across the world. As manager of the Lou Key Sanctuary, he had the power to help heal the Key's ecosystems. In 1990, Causey's purview broadened. Through a congressional act, the Lou Key and Key Largo Marine Sanctuaries were combined into the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. Kazi was appointed superintendent. And it was in 1991 and 92 that huge concerns started being developed around what we were doing to protect the reefs in the Florida Keys. 
The Sanctuary Act did a few things in particular. It safeguarded against oil and gas drilling, established water quality standards, and placed a limit on ship size allowed in the boundaries of the sanctuary. Congress also directed NOAA to work with the local community to form the first sanctuary advisory program. From there, Causey and his board were to work out a management plan, and that's where the trouble begins. But we knew that with the right tools and with the support coming from the community, that we could do it. But that support was not there in the beginning with some groups. In July 1992, one group came up to bat against Causey. It was a very tough day. A group had formed that was opposing the sanctuary and they were called the Conk Coalition. Pretty catchy name. And they had a slogan that was equally catchy. It said, say no to Noah. The Conk Coalition started forming this large protest meeting at one of our Sanctuary Advisory Council meetings. And, and actually the day before I was in Washington and I got a call from my team that said uh, they heard that the Conk Coalition were, were they were going to have images there, they were going to hang an image and they were going to do this and that. And They had t-shirts with my face on them with international nose through them and all sorts of things that were very personal. But clearly I, I was not prepared when I arrived at the meeting that morning and saw a, a huge life-size effigy of me. It was so clear I even caught the gap in my teeth. I mean, it really looked like me. I just... We were hanging in the parking lot on a scaffold and they were threatening to burn them later in the morning. Short of the day I heard of my mother and father's deaths, that was the worst day of my life. I was met by a lot of friends that were involved, a lot of commercial fishermen that I'd worked with, and they were very pleased with what they had done, but they were very serious. And you know, one of them came up and said, Billy, I, I'm the one that stuffed the effigy, and, and Billy, I'm the one that drew the face on the effigy. The Conk Coalition also brought a number of coconuts, spray-painted with messages like, Say no to Noah, or nuts to Noah, or Billy C. lied to me. Oh, they, were, they had all these catchy slogans on these coconuts, and they had hundreds of them. And so each there's well over 400 people in opposition that were there. The plan was to throw the coconuts during the advisory council meeting, but it never escalated that far. And the fire department was called, so the effigies weren't burned after all. But Kazi and the advisory council were shaken. He says they realized that to be effective, they'd have to involve the whole community in the management process. That we needed to work with the community, and we needed to work with that sector of the community. But we also had to work, there were far more people from the conservation environmental side that wanted more protection. And so we had a, 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 we were absolutely obligated to work with both those that were concerned as well as those that wanted to see more happen to protect the coral reefs and the water quality of the Keys. And, and that's where we get. We're not gonna come in and arbitrarily make decisions without getting input and without getting a lot of input. In fact, we're known for our public meetings. We're known for going out and reaching out to the public. Sometimes to our detriment, we, we actually keep it alive too long. The wisdom of my great bosses in NOAA and the people that I worked with in NOAA recognize the importance of, of agreeing to things and, and to live up to those things because you get so much more 
through cooperation and collaboration if, if you stick to it. It took years of collaborations and a number of concessions, but an updated management plan for the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary took effect in 1997. Today, the Keys Sanctuary is one of Florida's gems. When I'm driving up and down the bridges in the Keys or I'm looking out across the water, I love to see that sky sea interface. And the days when it's real calm and you can't quite tell the difference between the sea and the sky, that's spectacular. And it's at that point is where I get my batteries charged. That's, that's where my personal solar charging is taking place is when it's, it's that, that transition between sea and sky and you can't tell the difference. There's a new nominations process for the National Marine Sanctuary designation, and for communities interested in establishing their own, check out NOAA's specifications. I'm putting up a link at watershedradio.com in case you're interested. And speaking of which, there's an application in the works for a new National Marine Sanctuary in Northeast Florida. For these folks, Billy Causey can't stress enough that collaboration is the key to success. You're shooting yourself in the foot if you're not involving all sectors of the community. Thanks for letting us whisper in your ear again this week, and we'll catch you next time. I want to give a quick shout-out for congratulations to Senator Bob Graham, Estes Whitfield, Ryan Smart, and Manley Fuller for their recent passage of Amendment 1. Hats off to you guys. Our music comes from the incomparable The Soon Another. And you knew it was coming, so here it goes. If you like this podcast, please consider making a donation. Our investigative engines can't run without your fuel. I'm Anna Hamilton, and thanks for listening to Watershed, 